0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit jasongarwood.com for more resources. Health for All of Life A Medical Manifesto of Hope and Healing for the Nations Copyright 2020 Jason M. Garwood Cross and Crown Books Warrington, Virginia Narrated by Scott Tucker Forward by Martin G. Salbreed Rare is the book that is able to bridge the conceptual gap between spiritual health and medical health without compromising on one or the other element. When an author starts out by, quote, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, end quote, Matthew six thirty three, and commits to living, quote, by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, end quote, Matthew 4 verse 4, he'll not stray far. Such consecration of effort invites the reader to join the author in striving to think God's thoughts after him. Dr. Jason Garwood is serious about the proposition that, quote, all things cohere in Christ, end quote, inviting his readers to reclaim aspects of their lives that have long since defaulted to cultural norms in conflict with both God's Word and His Creative Wisdom. How often have we seen the term Christian self-government being paid little more than lip service? Dr. Garwood puts legs on the concept of an area where it has the most ultimate impact on our own lives, our health. He extends the scope of self-government under God to embrace the whole man in all his complexity and glorious responsibility as an image bearer of the Most High. Is it possible for this volume to be both a theology book and a primer on personal health? It is not only possible, it is necessary that a book like this appear in print. Our theologies are too often detached from reality and our ideas of health are predominantly informed by humanistic impulses that exclude the creator from providing insights into his own creation. We treat these concerns like oil and water that cannot be mixed, let alone safely united. Footnote 1 It is commonly thought that each side would lose something in the exchange. Biblical faith will erode and fade into mystical irrationalism, supporting scientifically untenable ideas or Will spawn countless Pharisees condemning one another for their medical decision-making, on the other hand, humanistic medicine derides all attempts for orthodox Christian theology to speak to its theory and practice, affirming instead its explicit trust in man quote, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his arm End quote Jeremiah seventeen verse five and footnote. A realignment is called for, a realignment of health according to biblically informed parameters and a realignment of theology to speak his word into every realm, the medical field included. We need a faith that goes deep and goes wide. Dr. Garwood understands this and acts upon it. One key takeaway is Dr. Garwood's call to decentralize health and medical concerns. This doesn't require an institutional top-down strategy. It can and should be achieved by individuals committed to the kingdom of God and their service to the king as they take back responsibility for their health and that of their families. It's humanism that requires conformity to a one-size-fits-all medical paradigm. By contrast, there is liberty within the Christian worldview. Under humanism... You can keep your doctor, only until that promise is voided. When health for all of life is embraced, you learn to be your own doctor. The road to holistic health. Whether you spell it holistic or holistic, one fact stands out. One of the more obvious avenues by which people adopt holistic health practices is when Western medicine fails them. When you're told you only have six more months to live and the doctors have nothing left to offer, motivation to look beyond your circle of practitioners kicks in with a vengeance. Patients either capitulate to the apparent death sentence or they start to do their own research beyond the bounds of Western medical practice. In other words, it seems to take a crisis for humans to break out of the circle of medical convention. Many of these individuals do better on their own than medical science would have allowed for. They either live longer than predicted, by margins that can embarrass the prophets in white coats, or go into remission, regarded as a fluke and too often dismissed as a statistical outlier by their former doctors. The real mystery is why so many regard holistic medicine as a last resort, rather than an excellent starting place, why not reverse the roles and use holistic medicine as our basic strategy and call the medical doctor as a last resort? Given that prevention dominates the holistic paradigm, why do we not act as if we truly believe that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? How did we end up in this situation? Dr. Garwood lays out the historical steps that have led up to the de facto monopoly now being exercised by Western medicine and its reductionist, see footnote 2, view of the human body and its allopathic, see footnote 3, approach to pathology. The resulting tunnel vision parallels the well-known truism that when you only have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Footnote 2. Reductionist means that the systems of the body are reduced to individual mechanical or chemical or electrical parts where the sum of the parts isn't greater than the whole. Analysis or cutting things into smaller pieces to study them is important but one must not forget that the thing you're studying has been cut into pieces. The reductionist usually looks for a natural mechanistic explanation for things without reference to a creator, while discarding any consideration of spiritual dimensions as non-existent or, if existent, irrelevant. And footnote 2. Footnote 3. A term now regarded as controversial, Western medicine approves of labeling competing models, but dislikes it when its own paradigm is labeled. Allopathy refers to treating a medical condition with elements that oppose that pathology, e.g. providing a laxative for constipation, aspirin for fever, escalating to more severe tactics to oppose a condition such as radiation focused on a tumor to kill it or surgery to remove it. End of footnote. Synonyms for allopathic medicine include mainstream medicine, conventional medicine, and orthodox medicine. Note how useful these definitions are for maintaining a monopoly. The respective alternatives to these terms would be fringe medicine, unconventional medicine, and unorthodox medicine. These are clearly pejorative terms that instill fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And if we let others do our thinking for us, that is precisely where we will land. The language is manipulated so as to manipulate us. We are disinclined to consider alternatives, let alone looking into how elitism has crept into the mix. It is clear that Dr. Garwood is his own man. You will soon see that he doesn't blindly follow every point made by the authorities he cites favourably. He exercises self-government with respect to them and he invites the reader to do the same with the points that he himself is making. He doesn't call for decentralization with one hand and then hypocritically impose a new top-down orthodoxy with the other. He rather surveys the widening field of discussion and illustrates areas for his readers to start their own journey to health for all of life. This is not a force-fit agenda being promoted. This is Christian self-government geared towards maximizing our service to the king and his kingdom in every realm, especially the medical and health realm. The author of this book goes out of his way to acknowledge the tremendous successes of modern medicine in certain areas. Trauma medicine, many areas of surgery. He believes in, quote, the right tool for the right job, end quote. And the advances on these fronts are real and valuable and must not be dismissed. However, when these specific successes are conflated with everything else under the umbrella of allopathic medicine, as if it's all one monolithic enterprise, Dr. Garwood is quick to point out the underlying sleight of hand behind this bait-and-switch. He insists that each discipline in medicine stand on its own two feet, exposed at all times to fair criticism and competition, and you should do the same. Uncritical acceptance is the way of the drone or serf, not the self-governed Christian. Letting all of allopathic medicine ride the coattails of legitimate successes in emergency medicine and surgical innovation has led many to discount holistic medicine. If defenders of holistic medicine pointed to one area of success in the field and claimed that the one area of success proves that all of holistic practice is therefore validated, would you agree? I wouldn't, and you shouldn't either. But how many doctors could object without becoming hypocrites? We need to follow Paul's command, quote, in understanding, be men, end quote. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, and not be manipulated by faulty logic by anyone on either side of the dispute. The problem with monopolistic power. When the medical enterprise attempts to operate more and more like a monopoly, having a corner on the truth and therefore the only legitimate game in town, it is advancing a doctrine of infallibility in its favor. The claim of infallibility is always exclusive. If I'm right, you must be wrong. The system doesn't even have to use the term infallible. It need only speak and act as if it is infallible. The infallible members of your society become the de facto gods of your society. Every competitor is defined to be fallible and, in fact, dangerously fallible. The irony, of course, is that modern medicine has been backpedaling continually for centuries. It is notoriously fallible. There's even a special word to describe illnesses and injuries sustained under treatment by a doctor or a hospital. Iatrogenic. But I'm speaking not of individual practitioners, but of the system as a whole. Today's orthodoxy becomes tomorrow's old wives' tale. except. The old wife is actually the mass of doctors of the previous decades. Conventional wisdom is continually overturned. How can this situation prevail and doctors still retain their air of infallibility? It's not as if being infallible is a plus, because doctors have been subjected to the false idea of infinite liability. Gods must be perfect and any error is savagely penalized. Infinite liability drives up the cost of insurance premiums doctors must pay, making it increasingly difficult to enter certain risky specialties in an area as litigious as our own. The answer is that Western medicine is quick to loudly put its errors behind it and create the impression that all its errors lie in the past. Its defenders will bemoan that Ignaz Semmelweis, 1818 to 1865, was vilified by the medical profession for calling upon surgeons to wash their hands and tools before surgery. Doctors at the time refused to believe that they were the source of infection, morbidity, and death. Modern medicine would have you believe that these lessons were learned, but new parallels seemed to crop up over time. Let's consider one area where health professionals appeared to be penetrating the area of holistic medicine, the food pyramid. Each subsequent era saw the previous food pyramid being scorned as erroneous, yet each was put forward as the model for a healthy diet. But medical critics of earlier pyramids asserted that following the earlier guideline would be harmful to one's health. Were the earlier pyramids designed to promote certain products and not others? Have we arrived at the final, quote, healthy, unquote, pyramid? How would you know, given that science is always provisional and never final in its claims? Dr. Garwood's holistic alternative to these fluctuating standards at least has its feet planted firmly in reality. The monopolistic bent of Western medicine, which comes into focus when Dr. Garwood discusses the Flexner report herein, is reflected in its antagonism towards competitive systems of healing. The AMA's infamous war against chiropractic ended badly for modern medicine, while the mechanistic models that dominate the horizon made it hard for doctors to understand how acupuncture, based on meridians absent from Western medical charts, could possibly work. Yet, it can and does. Such concessions don't come easy to the monopolists. The overturning of conventional wisdom doesn't look good in a monopolistic, infallible system, which is why such systems routinely co-opt each course correction as a positive achievement rather than as a proof of earlier institutional blindness. Some course corrections take centuries, And the fact that the error was ancient doesn't fully explain it. It merely tells us how long the researchers were blind to the truth. Let's consider two examples that illuminate this problem. The physician who exerted the most influence on medicine was Galen, 129 to 217 AD, whose impact stretched forward 15 centuries. His anatomy and physiology weren't challenged until the 17th century. He wrote over 600 treaties, two-thirds of which have been lost, and the index of words used in his work spans 1,300 pages in its own right. What he got right had a huge impact over time, but his errors also radiated down through the centuries too, shaping the future of medicine as well. One blindness of his, he could see blood in arteries and in veins, but had no conception of blood circulation, which waited until 1628 for William Harvey to describe. If Galen could miss circulation, as massive as its achievements were, and they tower over the medical profession, and surgeons could miss the importance of sterile conditions, how is it that medicine is so certain it hasn't missed anything. The next example puts another nail in the coffin of infallibility. For several centuries, the heart was thought to be a compression pump, squeezing blood straight into the blood vessels for distribution. But modern non-invasive imaging of the flow of blood in the 21st century showed blood in the heart flowing in very complex rotating patterns vortices, where even individual blood cells are spinning. There is a tremendous amount of angular or rotational momentum inside the human heart, which would have been unthinkable to previous generations who only saw a simple linear pump. Some of the spiraling blood is critical to keeping certain passages in the heart open and functional. The complexity is stunning. The complexity is stunning the complex rotational system, an astonishment to all who see the imaging videos. When Dr. Ares Pasipalurides, MD, PhD, FACC, published his 960-page masterpiece, Heart's Vortex, in 2010, he discovered in exhaustive detail what was going on inside the heart, none of which was fully understood prior to that time. But this scientific discovery isn't the big surprise regarding how the heart actually works, despite contradicting centuries of erroneous concepts dominating the medical field. The big surprise is that an earlier researcher had already discovered the vorticity of blood inside the mammalian heart, but nobody took his findings seriously. Leonardo da Vinci had painstakingly analyzed the flow of blood inside the heart of an ox and sketched out the vortices and their paths in his notebooks. He described phenomena that didn't come to light again until the late twentieth century. Footnote six Ralph Marianelli at Al quote, The Heart is not a pump, a refutation of the pressure propulsion premise of the heart function end quote, in Frontier Perspectives, the Journal of the Center of Frontier Sciences at Temple University, Fall Winter 1995, Volume 5, Number 1, the authors point out that, Normal blood flow involved a transfer of momenta via vortical and helical motions, including even the spinning of individual blood cells on their axes in servilinear systems, the shape of red cells being a testament to the concept, end quote. Farad Bakatri M.D., Mirko Scheiman, M.D., Omer Dismali, M.D., Salami Dogen, M.D., Volker Shangsinger M.D., Ph.D., Hans Ackerman, M.D., Ph.D., Anton Moritz, Ph.D., M.D., Peter Klein, MD, PhD, quote, Impact of Patient Prothesis Mismatch and Aortic Valve Design in Coronary Flow Reserve After Aortic Valve Replacement, end quote. Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Volume 49, number 7, 2007, inform us that, quote, normal coronary flow reserve is dependent upon whether or not stable spiral flow, which contains stored momentum, is able to pass through the valve. And into the sinuses of Valsalva without disruption. End, quote. end footnote. The dense tech talk in the previous footnote shows that it took eight doctors to arrive at a scientific conclusion already reached five centuries earlier by Da Vinci, who had written that quote, blood flows out of the ventricle into the sinuses of Valsalva. Where a portion of the forward flow is diverted to form a vortical flow that assists in the closure of the leaflets of the aortic valve. End quote. This idea appears as a quote, new end quote, discovery in the last footnote. In short, modern medicine was five centuries behind Da Vinci's discovery. Science actually lost ground and went backwards failing to observe, with all of its instruments, what da Vinci could see without any instruments. As recently as December 2019, Dr. Passipolarides himself drew attention to this stunning situation. We've ended up back where we were 500 years ago. Who should get the credit? These discoveries also illustrate how reductionist thinking e.g. the heart is merely a simple pump, stymies scientific progress and often makes the truth inaccessible. The profession assumed the matter was inconsequential and unimportant. The experts were wrong on both counts. We've not even touched on the question of suppression of data by scientific and medical researchers. One of the more notorious cases involves Sigmund Freud, who discounted a massive amount of evidence for incest in the culture he lived in due to confirmation bias against the results of his own research. This issue became heated enough to end up in court when defenders and critics of Freud clashed. The critic won the case. Small wonder then that Dr. Garwood thinks we should be more discriminating regarding whom, or whom with a capital W, We place our faith in when it comes to our spiritual and physical health. Credit where credit is due, yes, but exercise a healthy skepticism when professionals resort to pulling rank and attempt to canonize the status quo. Man is a unity. One key point that Dr. Garwood makes through his volume is that man was created as a unity. Death is the extraordinary disruption of this unity, the tearing apart of soul and body, which are otherwise fully united. Reductionist-minded theologians and scientists have tried to argue otherwise. The humanistic worldview has tried to exercise quote, the ghost in the machine, end quote, the soul in the body, so to speak, to prove we're molecules in motion and that everything reduces to matter. It is noteworthy that some key humanist scholars have debunked their colleagues' position on this point. Dr. Noam Chomsky discredits any claimed success for this strategy. Cartesian dogma is commonly derided today as the belief that there is, quote, a ghost in the machine, end quote. But that conclusion mistakes what happened. It was the Cartesian theory of body that collapsed. The theory of mind, such as it was, remained unaffected. Newton had nothing to say about the ghost in the machine. He exercised the machine, not the ghost. Yet humanists continue to operate in terms of discredited premise anyway. Studies of the effects of emotional trauma on the body have illustrated that two domains, the mental and physical, are not distinct and separated, walled off from one another. Rather, they affect each other in powerful ways. For example, under threat, a normal person's adrenal glands will finally release cortisol. The adrenal glands of a person who has suffered from emotional trauma will not release cortisol in that situation. This release of cortisol is an important part of a key chemical cascade and its absence illustrates how the body and the mind are tightly united in ways that continue to surprise modern researchers. It is significant that this effect involves a body subsystem that Dr. Garwood addresses often in his book, the Autonomic Nervous System, or ANS. Fortunately for the reader, Dr. Garwood keeps things simple and easy to understand unlike some technical points being made in this foreword. One important consequence of holding to the unity of man's nature is that all aspects of man's being can be dealt with in terms of health. This is important in that health denotes wholeness and it is the whole man that needs to be made whole, to be treated as a whole and not as isolated parts. Healing. External Or internal. One of the most valuable lessons Dr. Garwood imparts to the reader is that in most cases the body has the tools to heal itself so the proper approach is to facilitate enable and expediate see footnote 13 these internal processes not introduce foreign agents into the mix to elbow the body's mechanisms out of the way to do indiscriminate battle against whatever problem has arisen. Footnote 13. For example, basal cell carcinomas, a form of skin cancer used to always entail either surgical removal or liquid nitrogen freezing, which are allopathic steps taken against the cancer. A more recent innovation is imiquimod cream, which is applied to the cancer and the region around it. The cream signals the body that an invader is present, acting as a whistleblower, sounding the trumpet in a biological call to arms. In turn, the body's defenses concentrate around the cancer and destroy it completely. Here is a case where modern medicine has taken a step away from allopathy. Harnessing the body's own defenses and assisting them by putting them On the scent of the cancer. While not suitable for every location in the body, such innovations make surgeries and subsequent loss of healthy tissue to gain adequate margins around the cancer, a thing of the past in many cases. Of course, when the body goes to war against a cancer, the skin looks like a war zone for a while, which is why prevention is always better than the treatment after the fact and footnote 13. At one level we all accept this idea. A suture is a way to help the body heal itself after a laceration. It holds the severed tissues together long enough for the wound to be repaired by the body's own resources. When a bone is broken, medical doctors don't create a brand new bone. They set the bone to align the ends so that the body itself can do the repair by reuniting the ends. When a structure is lost and replaced with a prosthetic or artificial unit, the performance is almost always inferior to the original. Yes, a titanium joint may be stronger, but it has no marrow to create new blood cells for the recipient. As for the power of nutrition, the first of three key elements in Dr. Garwood's assessment, which includes Nutrify, Detox, and Energize, This power has been recognized for several centuries in cases we instantly recognize. Scurvy is what happens when you suffer from a vitamin C deficiency. Rickets and beriberi occur when vitamins D or B1 respectively are in short supply. However, we've compartmentalized this knowledge rather than expanded its significance. Are these the only deficiencies we need to concern ourselves with? What other deficiencies are working under the surface due to factors we've not considered? It is in this area that this volume is particularly useful, as it delineates the full range of items the body needs. The author's exhaustive mighty 90 list of nutrients. Nothing slips through the cracks here. Some Christians might question the importance of such physical care of God's temple, and oftentimes, a misunderstanding of 1 Timothy four verse eight is the culprit. While true that eternal things are weightier than temporal things, that doesn't mean that temporal things have no weight whatsoever. By the same token, when Paul says that bodily exercise profiteth little, end quote, it is only in comparison to spiritual things that the word quote, little end quote, is used. Even so. The translation might read more accurately as, "Bodily exercise benefits in a few things, but devoutness is beneficial in all things." End quote. Footnote 14. The term quote, "bodily exercise" end quote, appears in the Greek as a somatic gymnasia and likely indicates all exertions taken for the sake of one's health, not merely physical activity, although That would be included under that heading. Footnote fourteen, as Patrick Fairburn said of Paul's point, action taken to sustain physical health was profitable with a certain limited sphere, since it contributed to the healthfulness and agility of the physical frame. Controversies, or are they? It is important to always read with discernment to, quote, eat the meat but spit out the bones, end quote. This volume is a pioneering effort, and it is self-understood that, quote, the pioneer is the guy with an arrow in his back, end quote. But one thing we have already seen is that medical science has spit out meat it thought was bones, and has swallowed its fair share of bones, not all of which it has detected we should exercise the same care in considering Dr. Garwood's more controversial claims, especially if we have a background in Western medicine and would find it challenging to abstain from scoffing or dismissing some of his discussions. Not every subject is settled and we shouldn't lead with our ignorance, which always comes back to bite us. Let us conclude with a consideration of two of the more controversial aspects covered in this volume. Detoxing and electricity. The first from a scriptural perspective, the second from a scientific point of view. Controversy 1. Detoxing. A shallow reading of Dr. Garwood's discussion on detoxing and his comparison of detoxing to the mortification of sin may strike the theologically astute reader as a bit of a stretch. It appears that he's drawing a very tenuous analogy and some may consider it a forced fit, as if he were equating things gratuitously and without adequate foundation. The skeptic might demand, quote, Can you show me detoxing in scripture, end quote, with the assumption that no scripture could be put forward to satisfy this challenge? But this challenge suffers from the same problem as the challenge that the Pharisees issued to Nicodemus in John 7.52. They told him, quote, search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet, end quote. Their starting assumption was that the scriptures nowhere spoke of a prophet coming from Galilee. Stunningly, they missed Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7, which specifically mentions Galilee in connection with the Messiah. What does the detox process entail? The removal of one thing from the body, so that the body in turn would be in a cleansed state. And it turns out that this concept can be found in the text of Mark 7 verse 19, where the term for the discharging of the impure matter from the body, ekperuotai, is directly adjacent to the verb for the resulting cleansing process. katharizoun. As J.A. Alexander puts it, that part of the process of digestion which is most offensive is in fact a purifying one because it carries off the impure portion of the food leaving only what is nutritive and healthful. Herman Ritterbos confirms this as the correct analysis of Christ's comment. Katharizum must be taken as The continuation of ecporeutai, the process of digestion, is at the same time the purification of the food. And H. A. W. Meyer affirms the same meaning. This process makes sure the whole of the food that is eaten, inasmuch namely as thereby every impurity passes away from it by means of the excrements. End quote. Removal of impurities of offensive things so that pure things remain is, by definition, detoxing. This technical discussion by our Lord is considered by some scholars to be a coarse explanation as to subject matter, but it is nonetheless carefully worded by him. Consequently, when Dr. Garwood discusses the process of removing impure things from the body, of detoxification he cannot be accused of asserting things not found in conceptual form in the word of God itself the scriptures are no stranger to this concept the removal of dross from silver etc is even a messianic theme but in mark 7:19 the concept is clearly associated with a major bodily function we would conclude then that the detox process is discussed in scripture in all but name, that its purification by removal of impurities can be no less corporeal as it is spiritual, and that these two aspects of the idea are both important to retain in our understanding. Controversy 2. Electricity Individuals with a background in electromagnetic theory may find some of Dr. Garwood's concepts, which he credits and attributes to his source materials difficult to accept. This circumstance arises because we're not normally confronted with an over-electrical phenomena in the biological sciences, with the exception of the electric eel, etc. While we will readily grant that EKGs read electrical signals in the heart and EEGs read electrical signals in the brain, we tend to leave it there. At the much smaller scale of the individual cell, we're willing to accept chemical activity at that level, but not electrical activity. The skeptic sees this as a force fit, and thus pseudoscientific, as Dr. Garwood isn't using technical terms to describe voltage potentials within the cell or explaining their precise significance. The book, after all, is an introduction to a wide-ranging sweep of topics and not the last word. But the importance of electric and magnetic fields in the biological sciences is itself a growing area of research. The continent-long migrations of birds and insects is evidently made possible because these creatures can detect the Earth's magnetic field and navigate with reference to it. The senses in the higher animal is often in their nose, as if they're, quote, following their nose, quote. Further, Whenever massive electromagnets are built, such as in particle accelerators or plasma containment systems, people are wise to stay far away from them. The deleterious effects can be quite dangerous. Electrical research by earlier scientists has yielded plenty of surprises that sometimes defy easy explanation. For example, the Earth has an electric field and one of the first experiments carried aloft in a hot air balloon was a gold foil electrometer to confirm that the voltage would decrease as the balloon got higher. In actual fact, the voltage increased the higher up the balloon soared, which came as a totally unexpected shock to the researchers. Legendary researcher Nikola Tesla set up an experiment to see if he could jump enough electrical energy into the Earth to make a it vibrate electrically. To his surprise he discovered that the required energy was already present. In times past astrophysicists noted that the spiral arms of galaxies were not winding up as expected and it wasn't long before electrical fields were being postulated to account for the observed behaviors in our night sky. None of these facts per se prove that the electrical ideas Dr. Garwood puts on the table for the reader's consideration are correct, but these facts illustrate that when it comes to electricity, the final chapter in that story has yet to be written. And when that is the case, barring irrefutable measurements to the contrary, we'd be wise not to dismiss new ideas too hastily, especially in light of the various scientific missteps described above. Throughout the history of science, inconvenient facts get pushed off to the side so as not to pose too great a challenge to the status quo theories. Footnote 20 It has become popular among defenders of scientism to launch scathing attacks against Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn, who had identified problems in how scientists conduct their work and build and market their theories. But this is largely the result of the increasingly politicized nature of science. Such politicization works in favor of monopolization and tyranny in the health sector. That science would bend the knee to political correctness is a disturbing trend of our times, undermining any remaining trust we may have for the priests in white lab coats. End footnote. Confirmation bias blinds in both directions. You only see what you want and you blind yourself to opposing data, or, at the very least, its significance. What, therefore, is the issue with voltages within the cells of the human body? Scientists will freely admit that there is electrical activity in structures larger than the cell, and even between cells. The nervous system sends signals using electrical depolarization waves, but not inside the cell. On what basis is that boundary imposed? It appears to be imposed due to confirmation bias and paradigm reinforcement. Only experiment and measurement should be allowed the prerogative to set aside these ideas in favor of a better one. Our science, like our faith, should be ever-reforming to be closer to the truth. In his book, Exegetical Fallacies, D.A. Carson speaks of the logical fallacy of cavalier dismissal when a position isn't refuted but merely written off. When it comes to the health of our families and ourselves, we should avoid building our lives on such a fallacy. There is a crucible of innovation in the world of holistic medicine, a world where spiritual discernment and avoiding the errors of past centuries can be freely exercised. Conclusion Quackery is a strong word. In the medical field, there is no more pejorative descriptor than quack. Because it's a strong word, it's important that we understand what true quackery is. R.J. rush junior provides sound guidance here. The difference between a quack doctor and a good one begins with a sense of limitation. A quack medicine and a quack doctor both promise too much. A sound medicine offers limited help for a limited and specific problem. It offers no miracles and works none. It cannot replace good hygiene, sound nutrition and healthy habits. The wise doctor makes no large promises. He knows how limited his role is and yet, within those limits, very important. The more we demand of a doctor or of medicine the more likely we are to fall prey to quackery. We have quackery all around us, in the church, the school, and in politics. It is present wherever men offer something short of God's word as the bread of life. Quote. Western medicine has lost its sense of limitation, and one way it promises too much is by denying any benefit to competing healing systems. Footnote 22. This is achieved directly but also indirectly using bureaucratic barriers. See Dr. Garwood's discussion of the Flexner report in the body of this volume for further insights. And footnote. Whereas Dr. Garwood puts good hygiene, sound nutrition and healthy habits front and center. Much of the allopathic medicine seeks ways to ease the consequences of neglecting them. And when Western medicine sees man mechanistically as molecules in motion, it will necessarily offer something short of God's word as the bread of life. In contrast, the author of this book has focused on the primacy of God's word as controlling every aspect of life. He holds, teaches, and lives out a faith for all of life and has written a wonderful survey describing a vision for health for all of life. He focuses on establishing health first and recovering health only as needed. In the great dispute between the two main theories governing the medical enterprise, Pasteur's germ theory versus Beaucamp's terrain theory, Dr. Garwood articulates a compelling defense of the latter The importance of which can be grasped once it is understood that only one of these lends itself to Christian self government. You can govern your own internal terrain by your own hand, but the germ model requires delegation to others, which is being increasingly mandated by coercive state action. Christian self government is the antidote to coercive statism in every dimension, including health and healing. We have here, finally, a book that proves a good set of starting blueprints to implement such a wide-ranging self-government, one which embraces responsibility rather than delegating it. It leads by example. It surveys multiple sources and is necessarily derivative, serving as a gateway for deeper research by the reader, but those are strengths and not weaknesses of Dr. Garwood's approach. May the reader of this book grasp the value of the counsel offered by this author and labor for the future described in Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12, where the spread of his kingdom's living waters shall bring healing to the entire world. Martin G. Salbreed, Vice President and Resident Scholar at the Chalcedon Foundation, Editor, Faith of All of Life, Arise and Build, and the Calcedon Report, Supervising Editor, Journal of Christian Liberty, www.calcedon.edu.